This is Dare I Say, a podcast from Harper's Bazaar, where we sit in on conversations between today's most daring duos. A note to our listeners before we start, this episode includes conversations about sexual assault. You're telling me that my assault doesn't matter, that what happened to me doesn't matter, that you're going to let people who do those things into power. These were the words Maria Gallagher spoke to Senator Jeff Flake in the famous elevator confrontation over Brett Kavanaugh's nomination to the Supreme Court. Fifteen minutes prior, the senator had announced he would vote for Kavanaugh's nomination. Now he was trapped in an elevator as TV cameras rolled. Anna Maria Archila was also there. She shared her experience of surviving sexual assault while keeping the elevator doors ajar. After the incident, Flake delayed the nomination process by a week. That allowed a supplemental FBI investigation into the allegations of sexual assault swirling around Kavanaugh. One person tweeted, Did that woman in the elevator save America? I'm your host, Olivia Wilde. In this episode, we sit down with Maria and Anna Maria from D.C. as they open up about that viral confrontation. What does it mean to have your public persona defined by one emotionally charged moment? Why do we need to talk about shame and bust open the conversation around sexual assault? Maria and Anna Maria briefly changed the course of American history by sharing their truths. They are women who dare. I went to the Senate atrium. That's the official name of the building. The atrium of the Senate Heart Building. Um, I got there before the doors opened. I got there at 7 a.m. And the doors opened at 7.30 because I was nervous I was going to be late. (laughs) I'm always nervous (laughs) I'm going to be late. And I had been the day before and I, I wasn't able to go to the protests on Thursday because of work conflicts. And so I went to the protests on Thursday and brought donuts and coffee to the people who were uh, because I wanted to just do something to help. And then I took the morning off of work on Friday and went in and had no idea what to expect. I said that I wasn't interested in civil disobedience. I just wanted to help because I had to be at work at 1 p.m. for a meeting, so I couldn't get arrested. (laughs) And so I was in a hallway for a little while and then got kicked out of the hallway. And then someone said, do you want to go to outside of Jeff Flake's office and wait? And he's one of the major swing votes. And so if you see him, just say anything you can to change his mind. And they said, bring a friend. And I was there by myself. So I went in search of a friend (laughs) and I found Anna Maria. (laughs) I don't think you actually, I don't think we introduced ourselves. I think I just said, I'm going to stand outside of Jeff Flake's office. Um, I I don't know who to go with. Do you want to come? And I don't even know if we said she, Amri seemed like she knew where she was going. So I just followed. (laughs) And then later we were like, hello, nice to meet you. (laughs) Yes. So I had been one of the organizers of the protests for months. The first time that we did a protest about Kavanaugh, my organization was on August 1st. I got arrested that day with a group of healthcare activists, people with disabilities, who actually have led many of the like furious fights inside the halls of Congress 
on healthcare, on the tax fight. The morning of the Judiciary Committee vote, I was supposed to head back home. I had assumed we were losing the vote, but I had one hour. My friend Daniel was coming from New York, so I went partly to meet him, partly to kind of say thank you and goodbye to the people that had been protesting. And then there was a fair amount of kind of disorganization <laughs> that morning. So when you said, let's go to Flake's office, I thought, well, we have half an hour before <laughs> the vote. It's, it's a perfectly good use of our time. I know how to navigate the, like, the hallways and the tunnels that connect the, the Senate building. So I thought I would just be basically dropping Maria and Daniel off at Flake's office. And then on the way to his office, you were asking me questions about how do you talk to an elected <laughs> Can I just call him a jerk? <laughs> and I was saying, don't call him a jerk. But like, if we see him and we probably won't see him, tell him why you're here and like speak from your heart and we'll just do our best. That's, that's what we have. And then we stood in front of his office for like, I don't know, 20 minutes, half an hour. We saw some reporters, which made me think that Senator Flake might be in his office. And at that point, so many people had been telling stories. And it's like, it's one of these things where like, that you witness someone do something so painful and so courageous. And it like, it's infectious. Like it's contagious, the, the, the like courage that people display and, and you want to participate in it. So in a moment of total kind of improvisation, I told my story of sexual abuse in front of Senator Flake's office. I didn't say very much, but I told the contours and it was very painful and I was freaked out that my parents would find out. So that was a few days before the, the Judiciary Committee vote. And then that morning, I don't know, when we saw him, the first thing that I wanted to say to him was like, I was in your office just a few days ago telling my story. And I told it because I recognized myself in Dr. Ford. Yeah. And that's how we got going. Yeah. I had never said the term sexually assaulted out loud in my therapy appointments. I called it the not good thing that happened to me because mm -hmm. I just wasn't able to admit that that is what happened to me. And it felt like to me, everyone consistently it's, looks away from these survivors because it's so ugly and it's so painful to look at them. And it's so easy for these people in power to look away from it and not see the personal impact and to generalize it. And that's why I got so frustrated that he was physically just looking away from us in a way that I had felt I had been looked away from after my assault. I knew friends that had been looked away from. And in the broader sense, how I felt Dr. Blasey Ford was just being, everyone looked at her, listened to her, and turned away. And they just mm -hmm. completely looked away from all of her pain and all of her suffering because they didn't want to confront it. And that's literally what he was doing right in front of me. And I just got so frustrated from the culmination of this happening to so many people I know and seeing it happen to Dr. Blasey Ford, I just got so frustrated. And that's mm -hmm. why I told him to look at me because I wanted him to see the consequences of his actions and see the pain of mm -hmm. what this would mean for so many women to actually look at it and face it. Mm -hmm. 
the image that I've began to kind of use to describe this is that with our stories, we're creating a kind of mirror. Because when you tell your story, I feel like I see myself in you. Yeah. And when we tell our sto- our stories, all of us, the country sees itself in that picture. And it's both painful and beautiful and an opportunity for... It was a tremendous opportunity for Senator Flake in that moment, for other senators to signal that they wouldn't just affirm the culture that keeps, that enables sexual violence. One in five women and one in 71 men will be raped in their lifetime, according to the National Sexual Violence Resource Center. The statistics are chilling. But hard numbers and spreadsheets do not convey the brutal personal realities of lived experience. That's why the brave testimonies of women like Dr. Blasey Ford, Anna Maria, and Maria are so powerful. The other thing that I've been thinking about is that people think of sexual violence and sexual assault as something that happens to just one person, something that one person does to another person. And I think in this moment, what's happening is many people, especially men who don't have this experience, like we are, yes, the experience is very unique to each one of us, but it's a collective experience. It's actually the expression of a collective patriarchal culture that we live in. And so that's why the solution can't be minimize to one person changing her behavior or one person, one man changing his behavior. It's actually about changing the culture. But the way to understand, I've thought a lot about Tanahasi Coates, and he talks about how you can't understand slavery or any kind of injustice by thinking of it as something that happens to a mass of people or something done by a mass of people. You have to understand it as something, as the lived experience of one person. Like, what did she feel like in the morning? Whose shoulder did she cry on? What made her smile? What made her angry? What was it like at the end of the day when she didn't have her children? You have to kind of imagine those questions and that's how you enter a collective experience. So what Dr. Ford was doing was so powerful she was allowing the country to kind of like as and when she says like i did it as a duty to my country like allowing the country to see this reality through her story and then you have to think like who was she before the like hand on the mouth and the laughter in that room and those stairs and who was she after and how is this like brilliant doctor who understands the brain better than most of us and still needs another front door. Who is she today? It's such a powerful way to really look at the system of patriarchy that we live in. Yeah, and I think it's easy to generalize. Mm. You hear the statistics of one in four women, um, and so it's easy to hear that and know that when you're sitting in a large room of women, Statistically, most of us have had some sort of non-consensual sexual experience, but when it's treated as such a shameful secret that nobody ever talks about, it's hard Mm -hmm. to bring those human faces to that statistic, and it's easy to just 
stated as a statistic without any emotion behind it when in reality it's such a painful experience. Three out of four sexual assaults in the United States go unreported. One of the main reasons survivors do not come forward is shame. Sexual assault is one of the most shame-intensive traumas a person can experience. Shame expert Gershon Kaufman has written that shame is a natural reaction to being violated or abused, and that abuse, by its very nature, is humiliating and dehumanizing. I mean, I have lived with this secret, right, for like 30 years. And I don't know that I would have released it had it not been for this moment. I don't, I don't know that I would have wanted my parents to feel the pain, to feel responsible. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if I would. And I think it's because the overwhelming emotion I felt in the years after my assault was so ashamed that I let it happen to me, mm. especially as someone who I believe I'm strong and I'm powerful, but I felt so taken advantage of mm-hmm. in the most intimate way. And so when you're so ashamed of something, it makes it that much harder to speak about it. If I was just angry or if I was just sad, I think I would have spoken about it more. But the national conversation and the culture that creates it to be such a shameful experience that a woman or a man or anyone who experiences this will try and hide more than they'll try and hide anything else. Mm -hmm. I think that's the biggest thing that needs to change is understanding that shame shouldn't be the primary emotion because that's what makes it this deep guarded secret and that's what makes it tear you apart from the inside because you're so scared to speak about it. I think coming to terms with the fact that I was sexually assaulted and being able to say it in a conversation without feeling intense anxiety shows the power of words and Mm -hmm. it's freeing to be able to talk about it in a way that I think I would be able to talk about other things that have happened to me just because I think I don't feel ashamed of it anymore. And I think that's the biggest thing is once it starts becoming a conversation that people are less ashamed and scared to have, that's when you can start moving on to deeper things of why women's bodies are treated like this, why the conversation around consent is no means try harder. It's not no means no. And I think that keeping it to yourself and keeping it as such a secret it just destroys you. And once you say it and you deal with it and you work towards understanding and being able to cope with what happened to you, then it has less of a power over you. I think the term sexual assault always had such a power over me and now I don't feel that it does anymore. I think just saying it out loud, speaking to my family and speaking to friends and loved ones and my therapist and finally being able to admit to myself that this is what happened to me, I wouldn't have been able to truly move on from the experience if I never said those words out loud. And I don't know if I ever would have said those words out loud because I've been in therapy for it and I refuse to use that term. Yeah. My experience was as a child and so I had like tucked it away, like way back in the deepest corner. And it's still, it was the thing I didn't want to be defined by. And so I still find myself kind of struggling to some extent with this idea that this is the thing that most people know about. Yeah. And 
You know, I, the other day I realized, oh my God, my children will also know about this. But at least they'll know about it as a source of power for me and not a source of kind of sadness. But I definitely am still surprised at the extent to which this is defining my existence in this yeah. kind of publicly. I also was surprised. I don't know if this happened to you. I, th- I really thought that I had dealt with it very well. And I didn't realize how much of an impact it had lingered on my life until hmm. I've started talking about it and moving on from it. Right now, I feel like it's something that defines me. But I feel like as I, as I continue in my life, it will have less of a hold on me because I won't let it have that power over me mm-hmm. anymore. Mm-hmm. But it is definitely surprising to know that that is what most people know about me instead of especially because it's such a secret it had been such a secret and now it's this thing that yeah people who I'll never meet know about (laughs) me which is wild yeah yeah I'd say I've always really liked to be defined as being nice and (laughs) before this most of what if people talked about me they would just say I was funny and nice and bubbly and it I have historically not liked confrontation (laughs) which is hard to believe but yeah I agree that it just realizing the power that came with telling someone the truth and Mm -hmm. holding them accountable in that moment it was really powerful and made me feel less like I had to be just known as being nice and funny and Mm -hmm. I could be known as something else In the elevator, Maria urged Senator Flake to look at her while she spoke. Why is actively listening to sexual assault survivors so important? People have started listening. People have reached out to me from all walks of life, either sharing their stories. And I've had a lot of conversations with men, actually. And I think it's partly because I'm young. So a lot of older people have seen me in their children Mm -hmm. Um, and no one wants to see your child in pain and seeing a younger woman clearly in distress I think hit home for a lot of people and so I've been hearing you know that these hard conversations have been happening between parents and children which I think is so powerful and makes me feel like this was worth it and hearing men reach out to me and tell me, you know, I've never had this conversation with my significant other before, but I thought it was really important for us to talk about our relationship and like dads reaching out to me and saying, I'm so sorry this happened to you, but I've spoken to my child in a way I've never spoken to them before. And it was so important because it is, these conversations are just so important to have. And I think having them is the only way to confront this unfortunate reality that so many people live with. And so I feel that people finding their voice in Dr. Blasey Ford and all of the courageous survivors who have come forward, finding their own voice, and then men finally taking a second to listen. And I do think it was, you know, you could hear the pain in Dr. Blasey Ford's voice. Mm -hmm. You could hear it. And I think you could hear it in me and in you when we spoke. Mm -hmm. So I think that has been really powerful for me to feel like moving forward people might start listening the boys will be boys mentality is normalizing violence right and it and it does a disservice 
to men and women. It does a disservice to everyone because it teaches boys that they have to be these tough men and can't be in touch with their emotions and they have to always be wanting something and they're owed, they're entitled to a woman's body. And it teaches women that if a boy is mean to you, he likes you. If you go home with a guy, you they are entitled to your body. So this idea isn't going to get changed until we think about why are we teaching people that they are entitled to someone else's body? Why, why are we teaching little boys that? Why, as you go on in life, why is consent not mandatory in all sexual encounters? Why is affirmative consent not what you look for instead of just not wanting someone to say no? Why are you not looking for someone to enthusiastically say yes? So those kinds of conversations is, it's frustrating, but it's just drawing attention, I think, to examples of, like, this is normalizing. This is normalizing violence and taking that to the most intimate level of sexual violence is a culmination of a culture that is founded on keeping women quiet and telling men that they have to be tough instead of letting women be as loud as they want and letting men be as gentle as they want. And it does a disservice to both genders and everyone who falls in between because it's a spectrum. Um, and I, I think it's so frustrating when those people, when you just say quote after quote, like boys will be boys. Feedback after the elevator confrontation was not limited to thankful parents. Both Anna Maria and Maria received abusive messages from detractors, including President Trump. The president tweeted that the very rude elevator screamers are paid professionals only looking to make senators look bad. He warned his followers not to, quote, fall for it. We both have gotten pretty angry graphic messages from angry men. And for the most part, like they're wasting their time because I do not have the energy or the desire or the time to actually look at those things. The detractors, I mean, I think that we are like their worst nightmare. Mm -hmm. We're these women who are like yelling at a man in power and demanding that he answer our questions and forcing him to look us in the eye and not taking thank you for an answer and not letting him leave. That is their worst nightmare. And the detractors have, you know, showed their anger. I have also heard a lot. I mean, Trump, President Trump made an effort to distract people by sending a tweet saying we were paid protesters, which obviously is a lie, but also I've used it as an opportunity to explain like how social change happens in this country. I have devoted my entire adult life to building people's organizations where regular people who do not have money and do not have power can find community, can build power together, and can make their voices heard. And that is the work that I do, and it is the role that people's organizations have played. So I am so proud to be able to talk about the, the role that organizations play and the fact that I lead one of them. And 
that I will continue to do that even if Trump sends a tweet about it. <laughs> the evidence is there that men in power are unable to lead in this moment, right? Flake is a perfect example. They will follow their party boss, they will follow Trump, but they won't necessarily follow the people they represent. For women, I think really like we have an opportunity to choose how we lead and how we follow. And it's uncomfortable to point at the fact that like white women actually voted for Trump in great numbers, affirming the culture that he represents of men grabbing us. And at the same time, many women, like many white women, showed up and put their bodies on the line and told their stories. But it, it, it would serve us all well to look at women of color who every day have been practicing how to like, find power in a structure that is constantly putting us down. Um, it's been systematically created. Exactly, like in a safe, like racist, patriarchal culture. The reason why we say, like, follow the leadership of women of color is because women of color actually are very practiced at leading and kind of finding power and truth in a system that's incredibly oppressive. I think in the sisterhood, we benefit from actually not looking away from our differences across like race lines, but actually looking at them and making a choice about how we engage so that we can kind of fat, like advance faster towards freedom. Maria and Anna Maria spoke truth to power and showcased the power of democracy. In that brief moment in the elevator, they achieved something that elected Democrats could not. They stalled Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation to the Supreme Court. I think that if it had been just the two of us in an elevator, it would not have had any effect. I think it was the fact that thousands of women were telling our stories and people were people who were protesting inside the halls of Congress were like just having these contagious displays of courage. That's what added up to that moment. And like I think what we did very powerfully was force him to think about people he loved and force him to connect with us. It was like demanding connection both in the moment with us, but also kind of imagine, asking him to imagine the people that he loves and the message he was sending them and the message he was sending women. I was shocked when I heard that he had changed course because, I mean, partly we were reacting to the news that yeah. he had just put out a statement saying that he was ready to vote for Kavanaugh. So I was totally shocked and I did not expect him to change course and felt, but also realized this is only, this is buying us time. Like really, like we're still swimming upstream. And I was very worried about the FBI investigation because for several reasons, like I worry in general about the FBI, FBI, like kind of, I worried about a dynamic where the country was basically kind of saying, okay, well, if the FBI says yes, this guy's fine, then, you know, the country looks away yet again. 
I wanted the story to be about people demanding their politicians think about the message they're sending to the country and not reducing the power to the FBI investigation. And of course, it proved to be an investigation that wasn't real. Uh, and so I, I don't know, I felt like Flake played the country. I would say initially I was flabbergasted, would be my word, and just agreeing with what Ana Maria is saying. I, I think that it was the culmination of so many women, you know, calling and texting and writing their senators and showing up and telling their stories. It was not just the moment of two of us. That was it, the moment we were like the straw that broke the camel's mm-hmm. back. Um, it was mm-hmm. the culmination. But I think even in a moment of such pain, I think it injected hope into mm-hmm. a time where it's really easy to feel hopeless and feel like, why does it even matter? Like, why would I even say what happened to me because they're just going to ignore it? Mm-hmm. Which is how I was feeling. I was like, why does it even matter? It doesn't. I felt mm-hmm. like it just did nothing mattered. And so I think even him taking a minute to think about it and mm-hmm. ask for an FBI investigation injected this sense of yeah, what powerful like how powerful a democracy is, is mm-hmm. that we the people have a voice and if we all use our voice, it's hard and it's like swimming upstream, but sometimes it works. Mm-hmm. And if it works enough, you get change. And if it works enough, you continue to a brighter future. And that's what makes a democracy great. And that's mm-hmm. what makes it a powerful thing. And it's why people keep showing up. So ultimately he voted yes, which was painful and really hurt. But the hope that I felt injected after he asked for an FBI investigation was just doubled and tripled and quadrupled Mm -hmm. and a million times exemplified by all of the strong, powerful people I met in that week leading up to it and all of the people who got on buses and planes and trains Mm -hmm. and came to D.C. to make their voices heard. And so... It made me remember that fighting for what's right is worth it. And even if the moment doesn't last, that moment mm-hmm. is all you need to keep going. And you just need like a reinforcement that it can it can work and you can keep going forward. So I found it to be hopeful. Yeah. And, and in some ways, yes, we lost the fight on the nomination of Kavanaugh, but the but the debate, the like who's right and who's wrong, I actually think we we won. I think the the conclusion was these men I mean not just men but like Su- Susan Collins and they will be remembered as the ones who installed the guy who attempted to rape Dr. Lucy Ford in the Supreme Court I think they the and the outrage that was displayed in the the day of the of the Senate vote was so powerful. I have never, I've been to so many protests in my life, I have never seen people just on the spot say, I'm going to participate in civil disobedience right now in this moment. I was not prepared for it, but I'm sitting down, I'm not obeying anymore. Just super powerful displays of of courage, collective. Again, it's like courage is contagious. And, and, And this idea that democracy 
belongs to us and that it actually at its best the best expression is a democracy of people that listen um i think it's here to stay and like these idea that we're gonna like bring democracy alive in the hallways in the coffee shops in the airports in the elevators we're gonna make it be ours i think is it's kind of reanimated in people's mind and so powerful it's like the light a light in the darkness yeah this episode was produced by Steph at Edit Audio. To find out more about our conversation, check out our show notes at harpersbazaar.com forward slash dare I say podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts. Stay tuned for our next episode where we sit down with Jane Fonda and Black Lives Matter co-founder Patrice Con Cullors to understand what activists learned from civil rights movements of the past and untangle the harsh realities of racism today.